You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organisation pursuing real learning, original scholarship and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Islam, the real truth about the religion of peace with Dr. Sergio Trifkovich. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner. Dr. Trifkovich, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be with you again. Today we're going to continue the essentially the beginning story of Islam by uh, talking about the level of violence that, that Muhammad brought to bear and basically the end of the beginning of his story. Um, why don't you get us started, Dr. Drifkovich? Uh, the seminal event in uh, the history of Islam was the Hijra, the uh, migration of Muhammad and his early followers from Mecca to Medina. And uh, the establishment of uh, theocratic statelets in Medina was really the beginning of Muhammad's uh, career as part prophet and part secular ruler and absolute master of life and death. But uh, in order to fully entrench his position in, in Medina, uh, he had to show to his followers that he was successful in the one area where until that time uh, he uh, fell short, which is the military power. Uh, he organized raids on caravans going from Mecca to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem and uh, Damascus. And he did so even against his own fellow tribesmen of the Quraysh tribe. And he did so even during the holy month of Ramadan, when in pre-Islamic Arabia, uh, everybody agreed not to resort to any violence. And this seminal year was 624, two years after the Hijra, after the big migration. Uh, the most important of, of these engagements was on 15th of March, 624, when uh, he attacked a big caravan and killed 40 Meccans and uh, took 60 of them prisoner, and uh, he only lost 14 of his own men. Uh, he then executed some of the prisoners who were his enemies back in the old days before he moved to Medina, and he also had a new revelation from on high, which uh, basically approved of violence in acquiring the loot in pursuit of the faith, and also promises uh, earthly goodies to the successful raiders and immediate entry into paradise for those who fall in the struggle. Uh, the quote goes, Allah guarantees that he will admit the Mujahid in his cause into paradise if he is killed, otherwise he will return him to his home safely with rewards and war booty. So it was basically a win-win situation and uh, a rather pleasing prospect to his mostly illiterate followers. Uh, this triumph in battle was one of the most decisive moments in Muhammad's career. A new uh, aspect of his personality became obvious, and uh, uh, it was really uh, a warlord who excels in uh, uh, exercising violence against his 
enemies, executing his prisoners, and invoking divine commandments in the fulfillment of a mission which has now become very tangibly secular, i.e. project power and to expand one's earthly domain. And I think that's maybe one of the most disturbing parts of, of this this beginning, this, a discovery for, for those, Dr. Trifkovich, who are not familiar with this. You know, if we were reading about the Mongol horde, I think this would be quite standard, but we're supposed to be reading about the founder of some religion, especially, yes, the, the so-called religion of peace, and these these beginnings are so violent. And it's not only <clears throat> that uh, he exercised violence against uh, the Meccans, who, of course, he felt they slighted him because they didn't accept his message, but also in Medina itself, he exercised uh, a rule of terror where people who didn't agree with him or who mocked him in verse or in any other way crossed his path were literally murdered. And uh, we are talking about the Hadith, the impeccably Islamic sources on uh, Muhammad's life and times. And it looks like over 20 people, some two dozen people known by name, were murdered individually by his followers on, on his orders. And uh, the degree to which he managed to suppress the conventional moral code of pre-Islamic Arabia is obvious when one uh, of the two brothers who uh, joined Muhammad in Medina uh, uh, said to, uh, to his brother, to him he had been very close, that uh, he would kill him if Muhammad ordered him to do so. Uh, the other one replied, by God, if Muhammad had ordered you to kill me, would you really have killed me? He said, yes, by God, if, had he ordered me to kill, cut off your head, I would have done so. And then the other one exclaimed, a religion which can bring you to do this is marvelous. And he became a Muslim. In other words, uh, in other words, a religion which is capable of completely annulling your sense of uh, loyalty and and your sense of, of bond uh, and and uh, of, of family and, and brotherly love uh, is not something to shudder at, not something to feel horrified by, but something to join because it is obviously so powerful. And uh, this is really the meaning of. Islamic Imam. It's a word that can be translated as personal faith, but it's different, def different from the Western understanding of that word. It simply means that uh, it, uh, it is a faith that provides you a refuge, but also a refuge from all conventional morals, or all conventional uh, belief systems and modes of behavior. It, in that sense, it was truly revolutionary. In that sense, it really represented a break, not only with monotheistic Judeo-Christian past, but also with uh, uh, the way of life and, and the moral code of pre-Islamic Arabia. Well, and, and it's important to note that uh, the, the people who, who received this violence were not just able-bodied men, but you could be an old man or a nursing mother. Uh, you were, if you had offended Muhammad, you were, you were not going to make it through the night. That's right. And uh, uh, the poetess who you refer to, 
uh, was even nursing a child at the moment when, when she was murdered. And uh, it was taken as a particular credit to her murderers that the baby was left unharmed. Also, what is typical is that after the victim is murdered, uh, the, the other members of the family suddenly decide to become Muslims. Uh, it, it goes without saying that uh, it was obviously the result of an atmosphere of, of all pervasive fear. It's like uh, someone being taken off to the Gulag during the 1930s in the Soviet Union and the rest of the family doubling their efforts to prove their loyalty to the authorities. And uh, the next stage was mass murder on the grand scale. Uh, it was Muhammad's extermination of the two Jewish tribes in Medina. And uh, uh, both of them were finished off on spurious pretexts of uh, not agreeing with Muhammad's rule or trying to betray him or collude with uh, the Meccans. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, the tribe of Banul Mustalik was liquidated in 626 when uh, uh, the women were raped and uh, taken uh, captive. And then in the summer of 627, the same destiny uh, met, uh, uh, was meted out to Banu Kuraiza, uh, which was a very prosperous and successful Jewish tribe of merchants and farmers. And uh, after uh, the so-called siege, when they were surrounded by Muhammad's followers, about 900 men were decapitated. They were, of course, offered the option of converting to Islam. And uh, their women were taken and, and, and children were taken into slavery. And uh, one of the widows, uh, a very beautiful young Jewess, was actually taken by Muhammad as his personal concubine. So you have a combination of sex and violence, of, uh, uh, one might say, drugs in the form of very intoxicating religious message, and uh, a charismatic leader who has imposed himself as both divinely anointed and uh, very tangibly uh, successful in, uh, in battle and in distributing loot to his followers. So by the, uh, by the middle of 628, Muhammad thought he was ready to test the Meccans resolve and to try and uh, uh, make a pilgrimage. Now at that time uh, he was stopped and a temporary treaty was established. And uh, this treaty of Al-Hudabiyah is uh, a model for all subsequent Islamic treaties with uh, the infidel. It is a temporary truce. And uh, according to Muhammad, there can be no permanent peace between Dar al-Islam, the world of submission, and Dar al-Harb, the world of war, which is everything else. And uh, to fast forward to our own time, that's why basically it's most unlikely for any Palestinian a politician to sign a permanent peace treaty with Israel. And that's why, uh, starting with Arafat and, and uh, with his successors, they all insist on uh, basically a temporary arrangement because it would be sacrilegious to accept that any part of Dar al-Islam, 
which had once been ruled by the faithful, had succumbed to Dar al-Harb and been taken away. That's why Orthodox Muslims still refer to Spain as Al-Andalus and uh, to, say, Montenegro as Karadag. In other words, they use Islamic names for territories which had once been ruled by Islam and uh, their secession from Islamic rule can never be accepted as legitimate. But to cut the long story short, eventually Muhammad broke that treaty and uh, of course he explained that if you're able to do so, you can do so with impunity if you're doing it in pursuit of the one and only faith. Uh, Muhammad marched on to his native city at the head of an army of 10,000 and uh, uh, only 259 Muslims lost their lives in the 82 recorded battles and skirmishes. However, after Muhammad's death in 632, uh, the real phase of massive conquest begins after the so-called four rightly guided caliphs, his immediate successors. Now, Dr. Fkic, when I bring up this, um, as I say, the end of, of the beginning uh, of, of what Muhammad did, and I talk about this, the extermination of these two groups of Jews, um, to to these sort of Western Muslims who will have a conversation with me without killing me, uh, they'll say something to the effect of, oh, well, what was permitted uh, at the beginning uh, is not something we would do now. So the, I, I suppose the idea of exterminating Jews on command uh, doesn't quite wash with my, my Western Muslim friends. Um, is, is this something, obviously, that was envisioned later? It isn't something that, that Muhammad taught, you know, since, you know, when you justify this to people, you know, centuries from now, tell them that it was something that was permitted at the beginning, but, but will not be permitted later. I mean, this is just some narrative invented by my whitewashed Muslim friends, is it not? Uh, I think your Muslim friends are practicing what uh, uh, the Arab uh, language describes as taqiyya, in other words, the art of dissimulation in order to deceive the infidel in pursuit of the interest of the faith. Uh, the notion that uh, Muhammad had done uh, or said anything which is not the example for all Muslims for all time is sacrilegious. He is treated as the paragon of goodness and uh, the example and that's why Hadith and Sunnah are so important because the Quran uh, uh, doesn't deal with numerous aspects of everyday life which are covered in, in Hadith and Sunnah and which provide the material from which by deduction the Muslims derive by analogy uh, the guidance for their lives today. Uh, for instance, in Saudi Arabia, women don't drive because in the Hadith, we do not encounter the example of a woman being a camel driver. And uh, uh, the important thing to remember is that uh, uh, contextualizing and relativizing is not a Muslim trait. Uh, commandments from the Quran and examples from the Hadith are to be taken literally and not to be rationally analyzed. In fact, rationalist analysis is is shirk. It's it's a deadly sin, and uh, the literary treatment of Quranic messages 
coupled with uh, the impeccable authority of the tested hadith as the basis for legal and even political as well as moral judgment is beyond dispute. So to say that, uh, well, maybe what he did in uh, uh, the seventh century was acceptable by the code of his own time, but we wouldn't do so today, belies uh, the continuous uh, 13th centuries of historical experience and, uh, and practice. In fact, uh, the same pattern of behavior has been repeated time and over again, uh, not only with the Turkish genocide of the Armenians, not only with the invocations of mass murder in the exaltations of uh, Hussein al-Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who joined the Germans during World War II, but also in uh, uh, the language of uh, preachers, even in today's Western world, in Finsbury Park in London, and uh, all over Western Europe and North America. In other words, uh, the Jew and, and the Christian can be spared if they accept second-class citizenship in an Islamic uh, society in which they're subjected to institutionalized discrimination, but they can never be equal and they can certainly never be one's friends. And that's why it's ironic when you mention uh, your Muslim friends, because in fact, the commandment of Allah is quite clear. This is in the Quran and therefore not even subjected to, to any analysis and, and uh, ifs and buts. If you're a friend to a Jew or, or a Christian, you are one of them, which means you fall out of the Ummah, the community of the faithful, you become an infidel yourself. Yeah, I mean, I'm just a cow anyway, so he's just befriending a cow. Um, right. and, and, I, and as opposed to your point, I'm referring to Christian standards of morality, which make no sense in an Islamic world in which morality is what the Prophet says it is. So, uh, talking about, you know, what, what the word genocide or, or violence or any of these Christian notions of morality, they're, they're really incomprehensible to, to a truly practicing Muslim, as you would say. Exactly, because uh, there is no notion of natural morality in Islam. Uh, an act is not good or bad intrinsically of and by itself, but only in the context of whether it is allowed or permitted or commanded or forbidden in uh, uh, Allah's revelation or in Muhammad's example. So, for instance, if he married Aisha when she was seven and he was 51 and consummated the marriage when she was nine and he was 53, uh, we are not to question the propriety of the act because uh, if he did it, by definition, it's, uh, it's the proper thing to do. And likewise, when uh, the Quran says that if you kill one man, it's the same as if you killed all humanity, sounds uh, very plausible and, and acceptable, unless you read the rest of the verse which says, unless it is done to prevent confusion and division in the land, <laughs> which means uh, unless it is done in pursuit of the glory of Islam. And again, while practicing taqiyya, many Muslim apologists will uh, read the first part of that verse and omit the second part 
which really uh, gives it the full meaning. And, and the meaning is that murder is eminently commendable if it is uh, necessary part and parcel of the pursuit of faith. And and this too, Dr. Trifovich, I think makes this religion more opaque and difficult for, for Christians because there there is, while God is of course ineffable, he the, both the New Testament God and the Old Testament God, of course they're the same God, through the narrative there is some uh, way to understand and, and relate, but a, a God who who has a completely arbitrary form of morality, uh, something that's somewhat indifferent, it's really hard to relate to, to such an entity. And I think that uh, as, I, as I've read your work and, and uh, tried to understand Islam better, I think that's maybe the most confusing thing for me is, you know, who or what is this entity that, that, that is so arbitrary? This, this cannot be the font of creation. Well, uh, Allah is, uh, in a way, one might say, the only actor in the world. Uh, he's so transcendent and so all-powerful that uh, we are all a mere transmission of his will and uh, all of our acts and all of our thoughts and uh, even our destiny, whether we are going to burn in hell forever or enjoy uh, the very sensual Islamic paradise, uh, is preordained even before we are born. And uh, one might say in the tradition of Christian Logos, why would God create a human being only in order to have it subjected to eternal torment? But you cannot even ask such a question because Allah is, uh, Allah's absolute transcendence means that you cannot even expect to relate to uh, him in any way except by utter prostration, by the complete submission, which is the, the real meaning of Islam. And if you remember the the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel with uh, Michelangelo's memorable Adam uh, uh, touching his forefinger with God, that kind of contact, that kind of striving for mutual relationship from both sides is... Uh, not only unimaginable in Islam, but it is completely sacrilegious. It, it is uh, uh, utterly impossible for a mere man uh, created from dust to uh, even expect to uh, have some form of two-way contact with Allah. Uh, he expects you to submit to his revealed word as passed through Muhammad and uh, to the example of his prophets, and to spend your life in blind obedience uh, to these nominalistically derived rules which are not to be questioned in, in any rationalist or even emotional sense. I, I want to just make a footnote here, Dr. Um, Dr. because you, you referred to this uh, horrible seven, uh, seven-year-old child bride. How did... Uh, how did Mohammed manage to manage his harem, you could say? Uh, if necessary, with divine assistance. <laughs> there is a particular example when uh, Aisha, by that time uh, uh, a young woman uh, in her late teens, and uh, another of Mohammed's wives, Zainab, 
who, by the way, had been the wife of his stepson Ali, and then Muhammad lusted after her and uh, got divine revelation giving him uh, the permission to marry her. Well, they too rebelled against Muhammad devoting too much time and spending too many nights with uh, uh, an Egyptian Coptic slave girl by the name of uh, Miriam or Mary. And uh, uh, when the rebellion in his harem happened, then Allah duly assisted Muhammad by uh, sending uh, a commandment that the wives have to obey uh, the husband and that uh, it is lawful for him to enjoy the favors of slave girls, which, of course, by virtue of not being fully human uh, and not, of course, being enjoying the status of wives, would not fall under the category of, of adultery. So uh, it is very useful when you can rely on such a powerful helper in uh, making your domestic arrangements. I, I, I really can't even make any further comment on that, Dr. Trifkovich. Um, you, the other thing I want to go back to, you had referred to the lives of Jews and Christians under Islamic rule, and, and you had started to talk about that, and I thought this would be a place where we would talk about the jizya, which has no analog uh, in when Christians would rule over Muslims. Of course, uh, because <clears throat> it was only in Islam that we have uh, codified and institutionalized discrimination against non-Muslims. Now, let us not forget that in the early stage of the Islamic conquest, uh, we were looking at uncouth barbarians coming from uh, the desert of Arabia and uh, conquering highly sophisticated and uh, both materially and spiritually developed societies of Palestine, Syria, Egypt, uh, Asia Minor, North Africa, and so on. And uh, they were not capable of uh, ruling these lands effectively. They were not capable of administering them. Uh, many of them, most of them, were illiterate. They would establish military camps. They would establish uh, a system of tax collection in which they would often actually rely on local uh, Christians and Jews. And that was uh, modus operandi that uh, in the early stages was very effective. People were left to their own devices. There was no forceful Islamization. Uh, life would go on very much as before. Certain uh, limitations would be placed on the conquered population, the so-called Pact of Umar. Uh, you cannot build new churches. You cannot ring the bells. You have to accept uh, Muslims when they're on uh, on uh, war campaign uh, for three days board and lodging and so on and so on. But uh, effectively, cities like uh, Damascus and Alexandria continued functioning uh, more or less as before and uh, the jizya, the, the, the poll tax, became onerous only when uh, uh, the Islamic conquests started uh, stopped spreading like wildfire and uh, when it was necessary to uh, increase uh, the, uh, the tax rate in order to compensate for the fact that through attrition and uh, through uh, conversion 
the number of, of Jews and, uh, and Christians subjected to jizya uh, started to decline. And uh, uh, then you have situations like in North Africa, in today's Tripolitania and Tunisia, where people would even sell their children into slavery in order to be able to pay the tax. Well, if you didn't pay the tax, you could always convert, Dr. Trishkovich. But uh, let us not forget that for the Muslims, uh, the mass conversion of a subject, subject population was not initially desirable because that would diminish the tax rate. <laughs> and this is specifically what happened in Spain in uh, uh, the 8th and 9th centuries. Uh, Visigothic Spain was a very prosperous society and uh, even though politically correct uh, historians now insist that it was somehow right for conquest because it was a society in crisis and in a state of dissolution. That's simply not true. But uh, the Muslim conquerors very cleverly balanced the need to spread the faith with the need to collect revenue. And we saw something similar with the Turks in the Balkans after the 14th century when uh, they would uh, bring uh, Muslims from Asia Minor or convert local populations, but mainly local elite, uh, local feudal lords, but uh, would leave the bulk of the population to their own devices and uh, not force them to convert because that was in fact economically more profitable. And that explains the fact that even after four centuries of, of uh, uh, Ottoman rule, in uh, Bosnia at the time of uh, uh, the Austrian-Hungarian occupation in 17, uh, 1878, after the Congress of Berlin, when uh, the Ottomans withdrew, you still had only about one-third of Muslims and two-thirds Christians. On the other hand, that one-third of Muslims owned uh, four-fifths of the arable land. As I said at the beginning of today's episode, Dr. Drifkic, we're, we're at the, the end of the beginning. I think what's perhaps most surprising for me as, uh, as I had learned about this was that Muhammad really didn't enjoy that many years of things being the way that he wanted. Uh, as you say, he died in 632, and that was really only five, seven years after he had really sort of established his power and and come to the position wherein he could say, uh, Allah has said this, and that's why I can take your wife, uh, and Allah has said that, and that's why I can have you beheaded in front of me. So he didn't he didn't really have this long period of ruling and conquest, uh, but he set the template for his followers to, to do likewise. I think that uh, his relatively early death uh, in 632 was a great career move because <laughs> he uh, therefore couldn't make any mistakes and uh, couldn't uh, bring about any disappointments to his followers. And uh, uh, so whatever went wrong, and many things went wrong, uh, both Umar and uh, Usman, the second and the third caliph, were murdered by their fellow Muslims. With the third one, there was effectively a civil war going on. Uh, Ali uh, was killed in battle uh, against the uh, Umayyads. So uh, 
what we had in, in the aftermath of Muhammad's death was both very successful external expansion, both uh, in the direction of Iran and uh, the Indian subcontinent and across North Africa and uh, uh, across the Straits of Gibraltar, but also not uh, 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 an effective consolidation of, of the Ummah within. And uh, the political modes of uh, organization which we encounter in Damascus and later on in Baghdad were an adjustment to the reality of uh, uh, a large and powerful empire rather than uh, the emulation of the example of of, uh, the early followers. And that's also uh, the root cause of the Sunni-Shiite split because the Shia believe that uh, the forms of political organization uh, kidnapped, as they would claim, by uh, Damascus and Baghdad uh, were uh, a betrayal of uh, the early forms of caliphate that was bequeathed by Muhammad to, to his successors. And uh, they regard, in fact, the discontinuity with the fourth caliph, Ali, as the root cause of all evil in the Islamic world. Well, in the next episode, we're going to begin to delve into the teaching of Islam itself, Dr. Drifkovich. As we close up today's episode, and, and I suppose the first couple episodes of what we've been discussing Is there anything else that you want to add about either the person of Muhammad or these early days of uh, of murder, uh, raping, and uh, and pillage? Uh, He is undoubtedly a great man in the sense that uh, (laughs) Hitler and Stalin are great men, a man who left his mark on history and a man who uh, influenced the course of world events. On the other hand, uh, I think that we do not have an example anywhere else, uh, either a religious or a secular ruler, uh, a political or a military military leader who uh, deviates so profoundly from the established norms of morality, not only of our own time, but even of his time, uh, violation of commandments regarding the Ramadan, regarding the members of your own tribe, people of your own blood, and so on, who nevertheless was successful because uh, he was a true revolutionary. And uh, through history, most revolutionaries who wanted to make a radical break from uh, established norms and traditions didn't meet uh, a very good end, or uh, at least their legacy didn't last very long. Examples uh, include Oliver Cromwell and uh, Robespierre and Lenin. Uh, in this case, however, we, through a unique blend of political ideology and uh, uh, religious uh, revealed mysticism, uh, we have a powerful brew, a mix that to our own time is proving unamenable to rationalist critique and to reform from within. And in that sense, one might say that uh, Muhammad was a very successful leader because uh, his legacy and his example uh, are inspiring millions of people in our own time with results that are visible to all. But however, from purely technical point of view, I would say that Muhammad was one of the most successful leaders of all time. 
Well, I think that's a good way for us to end today's episode. Dr. Trifich, we're looking forward to continuing this conversation in our education next time. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It will be my pleasure. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.